Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This week, Americans remember the defining milestone in the space race. 50 years ago, this Saturday, the Apollo 11 mission was a success when humans landed and walked on the moon for the first time. Half a century later, Mars is the next big frontier. Coming up, we'll talk with a planetary scientist at Central Connecticut State University about how the Apollo program helped the international community prepare for the next big step. Now, do you remember what you were doing when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon? I wasn't alive back then. Space wouldn't capture my attention until years later when I was in second grade and the Space Shuttle Challenger had me and so many others in 1986 captivated with this seven-member crew that wasn't just astronauts but included an elementary school teacher. But on that day, my teacher struggled to talk about what we had witnessed when the Challenger tore apart in the sky. Now, before the Challenger, there were other tragedies, like the first Apollo mission in 1967. Three astronauts were killed, not in space, but from a fire during a pre-flight test. Today, where we live, we reflect on the lead-up to the successful Apollo 11 mission, July 20th, 1969, including Connecticut's role in spaceflight. You can join us, too. What do you remember about that time? 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest grew up during the space race. Andy Poneris is a NASA volunteer as a solar system ambassador, and he hosts the Cosmic Perspectives radio show on WPKN in Bridgeport. Andy, welcome to our show. Uh, thanks, Lucy. Thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. And he joins us today from WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, so I wanted to talk about what it was like for you uh, as a child growing up during the Cold War. What do you remember around the time uh, the, that the Soviets launched Sputnik in 1957? Yes, uh, I was very young, uh, four going on five, but I do recall uh, when it was, and I, I recall most was was fear, you know, as Americans, we were afraid. Um, the, the Soviets launched, this is, this, again, as you said, during the Cold War, and the Soviets launched a, just a satellite only 23 inches across. They were sending a, a, a small signal back to the Earth. Uh, but we, were all, we all thought that, you know, as in the free world, that uh, the Soviets were going to bomb us. They can, they can spy on us. Uh, so uh, it, was, uh, it, it was scary. Uh, the, uh, and Congress uh, used, uh, thought of it as a, a threat to national security, and, and NASA was formed in 1958, just a, just a little more than a year later. So, um, you know, growing up uh, in schools, we, we actually um, uh, would have these drills to go down to the basement uh, for air raids. Uh, I think those drills really go back to the, to the Second World War, because if we went to the basement during a nuclear war, we wouldn't survive anyway. But we did have the drills. The fear was there, and uh, that communism would, uh, would take over the free world. When uh, the Soviets had that launch of Sputnik, did that then begin this, uh, the prompt? Uh, you mentioned that NASA then uh, was started uh, then after. But I wanted to play a clip um, from a speech uh, President John F. Kennedy gave at Rice University. This was actually in 1962. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said because it is there. 
Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Was that the president's promise to the nation, that this was an aspiration? And what do you remember about that time? Yes, uh, that was uh, near the end of the Mercury program. And uh, Rice University's uh, engineering department was uh, working on research uh, for the technology for, for the Apollo program. And he was there for a couple of reasons. One, to kind of spur the, uh, the university, but also as Americans to, to, get us, to give us that push, you know, I, I think, uh, from... Uh, you know, Mercury into Gemini and then into Apollo. So it was uh, uh, kind of a thing uh, to, to, get, to get us all excited about it again. And so do you think at that point in time, that's when, uh, I guess, the tide turned, so to speak, and people got excited about it versus being fearful of what the Soviets uh, could do? Well, I think the fear was still there, although um, it was exciting. I mean, I, I mean, as a kid, I, I wasn't fearing the space program. And, of course, uh, the U.S., uh, put a satellite into orbit, uh, you know, uh, shortly after uh, the, the Soviets did. And, of course, there was the race for space. And, uh, you know, I was excited about that. I, uh, I recall uh, Yuri Gagarin, uh, you know, was making, this was in April of 1961, the first human that the Soviets beat us again. They, they beat us to, uh, into space. And uh, what was really uh, unbelievable about this flight is that he, um, the, the Soviets didn't have a way of landing someone safely on the earth. And so he had a jettison from seven miles above the earth and he landed like 200 miles off target. And just to give an idea of how this whole thing went. And uh, so I, uh, the fear itself, uh, no, I think at that point we were, we were afraid because of the cold war, but I think the, um, I think that the, the, the uh, program itself, uh, the space program was starting to make feel, people feel comfortable. The real problem was, was the Soviets was beating us uh, all the way until maybe like 1965. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live as we talk about the lead-up to the successful Apollo 11 mission again this Saturday, 50 years since uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, successfully landed and walked on the moon. You can join our conversation at 860-275-7266. Uh, my next guest actually worked on uh, some of the systems in place in the lunar module for the Apollo 11. Uh, Ed O'Connor, uh, welcome to our show. Top of the morning. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. So I understand you were getting your mechanical engineering degree uh, uh, in the early 60s, and then you went on to work at Hamilton Standard, now known as Hamilton Sunstrand. So tell us about that time, uh, and what were you excited about in terms of starting your career and also working on these missions? Well, first of all, the moon race was something that we followed more with anticipation and desire to get there. And it was, again, the noble objective. And when Kennedy came in and proclaimed it as an objective, it was just exciting to see that we, had, we were committed to that. Uh, what that did to me is when I took my first job is I went to work in the space program for Hamilton Standard, became Sunstrand, and now further moved on to other names. Mm -hmm. uh, but what they were, just like the whole state of Connecticut at that time, there was significant funds coming into the state, if you will, from the, uh, the, the government. Uh, Hamilton was awarded by, by Grumman, who had the lunar module contract. They were awarded the, they were one of the four major contracts, and they were awarded the life support system for the, for the lunar module. Concurrent with that, there was a CSC division that ended up with the uh, lunar module inertial guidance platform, 
Pratt & Whitney ended up having been awarded the fuel cells, which ultimately they would change the batteries for good reason because it was a 49-hour mission and, and, they, and the batteries are more efficient for that purpose. But they also continued on with the, uh, the fuel cell that ended up being the shuttle fuel cells. So that ended up growing. Mm-hmm. And then at Hamilton, we had two things. We had the life support system, but in addition to that, uh, we supplied the backpacks that the astronauts wore when they were outside. It was the complete life support system. Uh, when you merge that with the suit, you end up with this complete space station up completely by itself, particularly when you have maneuverability. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the things that came into the state from that. Uh, it was a funding for the state. It was confidence in the people in the state. And then beyond that, the performance of the various programs in the state took that to where those businesses grew to be continuing for some still continuing 50 years later Ed, uh, um, from I'm, the various subsequent jobs. And I'm curious, how many people in Connecticut would you say, is there an estimate of that actually were working on uh, the Apollo program? I couldn't even guess. I'm going to, it's uh, somewhere in the tens of thousands or better. That's wow. like the number. Mm. Uh, Andy, what do you remember uh, from what Ed is telling us about all of the people that were responsible um, for some part uh, in uh, this very aspirational program again? Yes, uh, there were there were several people and, and companies in the area, uh, and of course, um, you know, Grumman was making the uh, lunar lunar lander and the legs. I have a friend whose father owned a company uh, in Massachusetts that uh, was making the legs for the lunar lander, and and several companies in Connecticut were were subcontracted. So there were there were lots of people in the area participating in the in the in the race in the space program. Mm. Ed O'Connor, I wanted to go back to you. Um, you mentioned the, the different. Um, uh, components that you were working on, but I wanted to start with the lunar module, this idea that you were helping um, build something that would be landing on the moon. I mean, I'm just curious, did it like blow your mind to be thinking that this is what you're doing? In retrospect, it does. Uh, at the time, yes, it does, but then all of a sudden, uh, you realize that you've got specifications to meet, you've got a job to get done, you're afraid of the, you got to make sure the job is done right, that, and uh, your focus ends up being on what you got to do to get there. It can't go wrong, and you've got to make sure it doesn't go wrong, and you've got to focus on all the positive aspects of it to make it work. Mm. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, that pressure that you and so many others felt. Uh, Andy Poneris, uh, before um, the, the success of Apollo 11, I mean, the, the Apollo program actually started with a tragedy. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, uh, three astronauts were, were practicing on the launch pad, um, and uh, this, there was real problems, and really the space race itself uh, is really caused this first tragedy. The, the, the push was still on to beat the Soviets to the moon. And, uh, you know, three astronauts, um, Gus Grissom, uh, Roger Chaffee, and Ed White, uh, were, were testing in the capsule. Uh, but there were so many problems with it. There was a spark and an electrical fire. And um, there were several problems. One is the hatch was opened in instead of out with a pressurized cabin. Uh, that was one reason why the astronauts could not get out. Uh, but there were many, many, many problems. And because we were rushing uh, to, to beat the Soviets in the space race, uh, this caused these problems. And so it took more than a year and more than a thousand changes to to make it safe enough for astronauts to go back into space on Apollo 7, and they did. Uh, Ed O'Connor is with us, um, who also works with kids at the Connecticut Science Center. So tell us what that's like, and what do you tell them about the legacy of the Apollo mission, as well as all of the other achievements that have been made in space through the years? Well, actually, what I try to do with the kids, I try to teach them some of the basic science and aerodynamics and things of that variety, okay, and some of the simple ways that, that the kids will understand it. 
And then when we get into discussions, I can tell them what's happened and where it is today and some of the things they were working on today. Um, like my last, one of my last jobs that was working on a space station on a life, closed-loop life support system in which you recover the oxygen and the water, and the water vapor and everything out, and you bring it back and you recycle it and use it over again, basically. So I'm looking at it from what has brought us to today and to where the technology that we have today and what's happening and what's happening in the future. I mean, we are getting ready for a Mars mission. Ultimately, I can't tell you when it's going to happen. Uh, a lot of it is politically driven, too. But that's where the future is headed. Well, Ed O'Connor, we want to thank you for joining us uh, today to tell us about um, your part uh, in uh, the space race and what went on uh, to uh, encourage and contribute to the international space community. Uh, Ed O'Connor, thank you so much for calling in today. You're welcome. You can also join us at 860-275-7266. Again, we're talking about uh, the anniversary of the successful Apollo 11 mission on July 20th, this Saturday, 1969. Uh, we want to hear your memories uh, at 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Darcy writes, I was 15 with my family on vacation in California. We took a road trip to Tijuana and watched the moon landing on TV that was for sale in a window. I will never forget being so proud and amazed. Everyone was cheering. Uh, again, that's Darcy on Twitter. Uh, Andy Poneris is with me from the studios at WSHU in Fairfield. We'll continue to talk with him and hear from another Connecticut resident who contributed to uh, the space mission. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This Saturday marks the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. I've been talking about the era of the space race with my guest, Andy Poneris, a NASA volunteer as a solar system ambassador, joining us today from the studios of WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. And we want to hear from you, too. If you remember watching uh, the moonwalk, uh, you can call us at 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Jimmy's calling in. Jimmy, where are you calling in from? Yeah, hi, I'm in Quag, out in the Hamptons. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning. So tell me, uh, what do you remember? Okay, well, I re first of all, I was on the beach at Cape Canaveral as the, as the rocket lifted off. I, my brother, and two other guys took a ride down to Florida to see the rocket lift, and we did. We were on the beach that morning. It was, un well, we were there all night. Everyone was drinking bourbon and going <laughs> crazy on the beach. And in the morning when the rocket lifted, it was so slow going up. It was so hot. It was brutal. And the rocket just took forever. We couldn't even hear it until about three minutes later. The entire beach shook. It was unbelievable. Every radio transistor was on the beach. We went crazy. Everyone was screaming and going crazy. And I had to be back in Manhattan within three days. I had to meet my new girlfriend, whom I'm now married to, the fabulous Carolyn. I had to meet her at a party, a touchdown party on the west side, which I made, by the way. So I had gotten from Cape Canaveral, driven up all the way to the west side, and in that time, the, uh, you know, the rocket had, <laughs> had gone to the moon already. They were almost touching down as I entered the party. Mm. It was so exciting, so extraordinary, and great, great fun. And we, we feel such a personal connection to the entire event. I can tell. <laughs> and, of course, being at the, uh, the touchdown party on the west side, mm. and we're married to, you know, still since uh, that year, 
and um, it was great. We uh, loved every moment of it. Jimmy, uh, on uh, PBS is this amazing documentary uh, through American Experience called Chasing the Moon. Uh, they have footage of all of the people like you who came down to Cape Canaveral. It was packed. It was packed. And you know, I've never met another person who, who was there. You know, I've, you know, we go to a lot of, we live in Manhattan and we live here in the Hamptons, and we've met so many people, you know, as you do, and I've never met another human who was on that beach that morning because it was wild. And we were the only Northerners that I knew that we were down there, you know, and everybody was, you know, from the South, but it was so much fun. We, we were all playing music and diving into this weird river that has phosphate in it, and you could see your trails going in as you dove into this river. And um, in the morning when this thing lifted off, that summer sun, that, you know, Florida sun in the morning, we were dying. And when it lifted and it finally got, and with that beach rumbled, we went wild. It was great. Well, Jimmy, thank you for calling in to share uh, your memory of the Apollo 11 uh, mission when they did land successfully and walked on the moon uh, July 20th, 1969. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266. I mentioned Andy Poneris is with me. Andy, I asked you about what it was like to grow up during the space race, but I haven't asked you where you were when you saw the Apollo 11 land. Uh, I remember where I was. It was over a friend's house, and we uh, we we sat in front of the television. We actually black and white TV, of course, and we actually pulled the TV close to us, and then we all sat. The four of us sat closer to back, put ourselves closer to the TV, probably to within about maybe two feet, and uh, with our elbows on our on our knees and our head in our hands, we just sat there and waited. And it was a long time between the landing and the actual foot, foot, foot I'm sorry, the actual first steps on the moon. Um, but uh, the excitement was there. Uh, we we didn't say very much. We just watched in anticipation. And I found out years later that uh, they were having some problems. I mean, there were a lot of things they had to do. One thing they didn't realize was that, um, or, or weren't sure about, I should say, is that the lander might just sink into the into the into the moon's surface. They didn't know if, how hard the surface was. Uh, this was a very hazardous and dangerous trip. And um, they didn't know whether it would sink further in, uh, what happened to the astronauts. So there were a lot of things that they had to check out uh, before Neil Armstrong came out. And they had some problems also internally um, with their backpacks uh, raising the pressure. So, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's it a that long period of time went by in such a short period of time. Mm. Uh, in studio with me is someone who I believe uh, helped work on those backpacks uh, as uh, an employee of Hamilton Standard at the time. Uh, Donald Rethke joins us now. He's a retired aerospace engineer. Uh, Donald, welcome to the show. Good, good morning. I'm glad, to, glad to be with you, Lucy. Okay. So unlike uh, our caller, you were actually working, I believe, during uh, the moon landing. Tell us uh, where you were. Well, actually, I'm an 82-year-old engineer now. At that time, I was a mechanical engineer, a farm kid from Wisconsin. Hey, I had no idea when I was in, immersed into this after the Navy. I wanted to three years. But anyway, so we had a chance to work on the lunar module. In fact, one of your previous callers, Ed, Ed O'Connor, I was a colleague of him. So we all worked together. There were probably about maybe a 1,000 or so people at Hamilton Standard, now at Collins Aerospace, mm-hmm. which helped design the, the backpack to work successfully on the moon. My specific job was to work on the lunar module. We had a heat transport section pumping ethylene glycolin water through the system to properly transport heat around the lunar module. However, at that night, though, actually, we had, at Hamilton Standard, at that time, we had our own mission control center. It was not as exotic as the one down in Houston, as Chris Krantz was operating. We actually had one or two engineers on in mahogany row. We actually threw out the managers and took our slide rules and our script charts 
and basically helped NASA to, uh, actually we had a landline phone with a speaker attached to it. Ma Bell was paying for our bill. I, I don't know what we were paying, who knows. Anyway, we had a chance to uh, talk. If Houston had a problem, they'd call us, okay? Anyway, also in the corner, we had a black and white TV set with Walter Cronkite selling Tang, I guess, at that time. So that was my, uh, at 12 o'clock at night, July, was it July 11th at that time, I reported on duty to this area and stayed there for six hours during the walk on the moon. Mm-hmm. So actually, we had no significant problems. Some of my co- other colleagues were down at Houston, uh, personally down there, the more the higher up uh, engineers. I was just a, at that time called experimental engineer. So we had fun. Yeah. So July 20th uh, to July 21st, you were in that mission control at Hamilton Standard mm-hmm. to make sure that if something went wrong, uh, the engineers would be able to talk with people in Houston. Yeah, we had our little, we had our, actually a little smart book. I call it No Batteries Required, a little pocket book mm-hmm. that we can pull out every detailed cross-section of every hardware, piece of hardware. We, had, we can relate to it with, us, with the specifications for that piece of hardware. My specific task was worried about the heat transport section. We had a pump that just like you can relate to your car, your, your water pump in your car. Well, that's a kind of a pretty big object in both of the front of your engine. The water pump in the lunar module was the size of a dime. Actually, it pumped the ethylene glycol and water through the system. And that's one of the things we had to worry about because ethylene glycol and water, ethylene glycol is a toxic fluid. Mm-hmm. Also, we worried, they worried about the lithium hydroxide. Have you heard of the scrubbers, the CO2 scrubbers? Well, this is another toxic fluid. And this is one of the things that Hamilton developed at the time. How do you put a caustic fluid in a, in a container and survive launch vibrations without, without chalking up and causing irritation in the cabin? So all those things we worried about. So we kind of helped NASA write the book to live in space. Mm. The backpack is very important. In fact, as you probably know, they left two backpacks on the moon. Ah, actually a total of 12 astronauts. So there are 12 backpacks made in New England, Connecticut, right here, Windsor Locks, are still on the moon. You go up and get one, Lisa. Come back. I think you can retire from the job this <laughs> factory. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Again, Donald Rethke in studio with me. He's an 82-year-old retired aerospace engineer from Hamilton Standard at the time, helping uh, with to develop the lunar module that Buzz Aldrin and uh, Neil Armstrong would use to land on the moon July 20th, 1969. Um, Nancy's calling from Woodbridge. Nancy, go ahead. Oh, hi, I'm Nancy Schumacher. I was in, uh, we were living in Groton, Connecticut. My husband was Navy. And, uh, but I was visiting in South Dakota, visiting his folks and his, his, his brother, uh, Neil Schumacher was, and I watched the, the whole thing. What did and, you think? Oh, we were, I had, I'm from Texas, so I knew things were going on. But and then of course we were in the military too. I thought it was wonderful. Mm. We finally accomplished what President Kennedy wanted to have done. So we managed. Well, Nancy. And uh, later on, my, I would find that my 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 stepsister's mother was involved with it at that point. I didn't know that at that point was that was when I just had a baby. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't I wasn't in Texas at that point was a Navy wife, and I was real active with that. Mm. Well, Nancy, thank you for calling here uh, on Where We Live. Uh, Madalena is calling from Niantic. Uh, Madalena, go ahead. Hi, yes. Um, I was uh, 12 years old, and I was in the Italian Alps uh, camping with a Girl Scout troop, 
And there were Italian Girl Scouts, and I was an American Girl Scout, and they were like, we have to walk down into town to see the landing because you're American. And I said, okay, you know, let's do it. So we, the whole troop walked down. There was one TV in this little tiny town in the Italian Alps that was the only TV in town. And we walked into the little bar, and we watched it, and we cheered, and we were all happy. And I'll never forget that. It was the coolest thing. Do you remember what the uh, reaction from the Italians was? Oh, my God. They loved it. The whole bar was, you know, in Italy, these bars are not like our bars. They're coffee bars. You know, you can get a little sandwich. Uh, But, you know, it was the only TV in the little village. And everybody was there, and everybody was cheering. It was, it was, it was amazing. Well, thank you. I felt, I felt really important. <laughs> well, thanks for calling here, uh, calling into uh, where we live. You can too at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six as we talk about the successful Apollo eleven mission. Um, again, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Andy Paneras, who's with us from WSHU Studios in Fairfield, and I wanted to ask, you know, the um, the images that were being broadcast at the time. People were fixed, uh, fixated to their uh, televisions, or they found a TV to watch. But uh, there was a lot of things going on in the background, as you mentioned. Um, it didn't go as smoothly as what was being broadcast. That's for sure, uh, particularly the landing. Um, and the, the video, and anybody who is old enough to remember, uh, the video and the audio was not that good. And uh, you could barely see uh, Neil Armstrong come down the ladder. Uh, but, uh, but it got a little better during the mission. But the biggest uh, problem they had was during, during landing, uh, they kept getting these errors, 1201, 1202. Those errors basically came back. To, they were found out in mission control that they were errors by the computers. They were so primitive that they couldn't land the spacecraft on its own. And so Neil Armstrong had to land it himself. And they're getting very, very close to landing. And as they're, as they're getting close, they're running out of fuel. And if you listen to any of the audio or, uh, or the, video, the audio on the video of the landing, you hear things like 60 seconds, 30 seconds. And that was basically how much fuel they had left to land. Not, not how much time you know, they had to land. And um, the, the uh, last call they heard was 30 seconds. Neil Armstrong is ready to fly over a crater. And then he finds a, a field of boulders on the other side of it. So he takes this very uh, uh, unorthodox uh, uh, fly, uh, way of going, taking the spacecraft and bringing it over the boulders and landing it down with 17 seconds of fuel left. And as Americans, we didn't know that. We just saw the landing. We thought it was wonderful, and uh, mission control made it look seamless, and so did Neil Armstrong. And he was, as everyone I spoke to, and I spoke to several Apollo astronauts, they all said that Neil Armstrong was the person to be the first man to land uh, a spacecraft on the moon. He was that good of a pilot. And at that point, the mission was only half over. They still had to get back. Uh, you can yeah. join us here on 860-275-7266 as we uh, reflect on the lead-up to the Apollo 11 mission, the anniversary this Saturday. In studio with me, Donald Rethke, who worked for Hamilton Standard at the time. Uh, when uh, they made it to the moon and they did the moonwalk, uh, did you have a sense of achievement that you were part of this? Well, yes, I did. Obviously, we felt very elated in that but I'd like to kind of relate one situation. Being a farm kid, back in the early days, I thought landing on the moon or walking on the moon was impossible. In fact, you'd tell your buddies, if you couldn't lift that bale of hay or jump that little crick, you'd say, hey, that is impossible. That is just like landing on the moon. So when they land on the moon, that whole phrase went away from me. In fact, 
I had a chance to repair something just before the Apollo 11 took off. Three weeks before that, I had a chance to get in the lunar module on top of the rocket and repair some of the Hamilton equipment that needed a little bit of a touch-up job. Uh, I went into it. They actually went up to the elevator next to the, next to the vehicle. I actually, they, they put me in a bunny suit to be a kind of a clean room area. They tied my tools to my wrist, and I did my job inside, and I had a specter right on my back looking at what I was doing. At, even at that time, I said to myself, is this piece of machinery going to be on the moon in three weeks? I still had that doubt in the back of my mind. Anyway, so they landed on the moon. Obviously, that phrase went away. Now, now we're on to Mars. But anyway, so in fact, at Hamilton, I remember we were just on the landing. We all of us engineers, we did not have cubicles back then. We all had individual desks. Well, they took one TV set, put it on top of a file cabinet, and about 200 of us were all watching the landing. Here we were. I got a picture of that. Here we are all in long sleeve white shirts with basically pocket protectors on with metal badges. At that, We had metal badges hanging down and also horn rim glasses and white ties. That was us back then, a real crew. I joined our conversation here on Where We Live. Donald Rethke in studio with me, a retired aerospace engineer for then Hamilton Standard. And then joining us uh, from WSHU, Andy Poneras, who's a NASA volunteer. He works as a solar system ambassador and hosts the Cosmic Perspectives radio show on WPKN in Bridgeport. Uh, here's the number, 860-275-7266. Uh, John from Hartford, what do you remember, John? Hi. Go ahead, John. Uh, I remember being um, very tired. My mom woke me up uh, out of bed. I was a little kid. I was cranky. I didn't really want to be woken up. I was deep asleep. And she brought me and my sister, who was even smaller, down the hall to uh, the living room. And uh, we watched it. It was grainy. We were confused what we were seeing as she explained it. And uh, we couldn't really believe it. And uh, it was kind of mind-blowing. And... Uh, later that week or in the coming weeks, I know that McDonald's even had a, a little kit that we, they would give uh, the kids with their meals uh, where you could, out of cardboard, build your own lunar lander. Uh, and uh, I just became fascinated with space as a result of uh, that whole endeavor. Well, John, uh, thank you for calling. Uh, do you still have that little toy? I wonder if it's worth anything on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it, uh, it was cardboard. <laughs> it didn't have much of a life expectancy, but... Uh, I, I still follow this uh, information. I've followed all my life. You know, where there was science fiction on TV, of course, before uh, that happened. But the idea that these things that were just uh, adventure stories could actually happen and be real was uh, just a whole perspective-changing thing for a little kid. And uh, I know there are a lot of kids like me. We all thought that, uh, well, we thought we'd be a lot farther out in space than we are right now. But uh we all believe that there was just there's no limit to what human beings were capable of in a positive way. You know, and, and during the Cold War, when there's all that scary stuff on the TV, there was you know Vietnam and things going on. Uh, uh, little kids uh, seeing that it was uh, it was just such a wonderful, hopeful thing to to contemplate. Well, thanks for calling uh, here on Where We Live. Uh, you know, we've, we focused a lot on uh, the efforts to build the lunar module. Again, uh, many Connecticut workers working on that project. Uh, Don Rethke in studio with me, also working on other life support systems, so to speak. But when you're in space with uh, zero gravity, there's other things that you need to take care of. Uh, we're going to uh, shift the conversation a little bit. I mentioned that PBS American Experience documentary that everyone uh, should take time to watch. It's amazing. But before we got to a 
Apollo 11, there was Apollo 8. And uh, they have a clip of astronaut Bill Anders talking about the equipment that he had to learn to use. One of the things was the fecal containment device. Sounds pretty highfalutin, fecal containment device. The fecal containment device looked like a, a plastic top hat with a sticky rim, stick it to your bottom, and it had a built-in glove. So I tested this thing and resolved that I would see if I could avoid using it. I went the whole flight without taking a crap. Uh, Don Rethke, that sounds pretty unpleasant. The reason I bring it up, uh, our listeners should know, you have a nickname, Dr. Flush. Tell us about the work that you would then uh, move on to. Never get a nickname that you can't live with. Uh, all I'm trying to say is being a farm kid from Wisconsin, yes, I guess we used to handle, take care of the, the animals and all that. But anyway, yes, there was no really bathroom on the, on this, on the lunar module. And so, so actually... Um, so yes, the, we, I call it the pee and poo pouches, uh, kind of a thing. Yes, you did have the you can attach it to your butt and do your thing, and of course you became real good friends up there too. So anyway, when they came back from the from the Apollo days, they wanted to sit down toilet. So somehow Hamilton's at that time Hamilton got involved in the the elements of life support, and that kind of involves that. After going, going a little bit forward, the Skylab, 1970, early 1970s, was a medical mission. They took the 22-foot uh, Saturn third-stage rocket made into living quarters. They actually had, this is the first time they had a really kind of a sit-down, com- I wouldn't call it a sit-down commode. It was a device that you can collect urine and, fe- and your solids separately. In fact, the, the, little, the seat was on the wall. You put your tush against the wall and your nose was on the floor. Kind of disconcerting to use the bathroom that way. But anyway, we actually had a chance to measure how much urine each astronaut delivered per day. This, this, the urine separator was made by Hamilton at that time. And basically, also, there was a zero-gravity Dixie cup. You know what to do a Dixie cup at the doctor? Mm-hmm. Try to fill one up in zero gravity. Well, then that, that, that uh, progressed into the space shuttle space uh, waste collection system, which was uh, won by another company. So basically, we kind of walked away from it and kind of said, fine. But we had the life support system for the for the mm-hmm. shuttle, so fine. Anyway, now after the challenges, the company wanted to get rid of that. So we were at that time. I got challenged to design zero gravity toilet for the space station. In other words, the shuttle went up, came back full of the right stuff. So now on the space station, it doesn't come back to Earth. So you have to have the, now the astronauts become the janitors. So we had to basically make a newer, clean machine for the janitor for the astronauts to take care of. Yes, and also. It involved actually collecting urine separately, going into another system to reclaim 75% of urine. Right now on board the space station, we recollect 75% of your urine back to usable, drinkable water. So that's how we progressed in the human factors of life to make it more comfortable in space. And may the flesh be with you from <laughs> Dr. Flush. Uh, Andy Poneris, what we think about, again, this uh, huge achievement for mankind, but all of the different technologies that were in development. And can you name some of the things that because of the Apollo program that we have today that we can accredit to that program? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, I've been uh, in the repair, repairing medical equipment for 45 years now. And uh, I've seen the changes in, in the medical industry. And many of those things that were developed were developed from the space program. So when I first started working, um, ultrasound machines were about the size of a small refrigerator. Uh, they didn't give you a real-time image. You had to wait some seconds for it to see it. And now they're uh, the size of laptops. Um, some are in cell phones. Uh, there are larger ones that actually are called 4D units that actually will 
give you a, a, a real-time 3D image uh, in real time and not have to wait for it. So uh, also, there was no such thing as a CAT scan or MRI. And uh, so when somebody had something wrong with them and a conventional x-ray couldn't find out what was wrong, they brought them into surgery to figure out what was going on. And uh, now well, we get scanned by uh, CTs, MRs. A lot of that technology came from the space program and it's done a tremendous amount for humanity. In fact, um, even the water purifications that Donald worked on, uh, they're used in, the, as I said, in the International Space Station. They're also used in countries where people don't have clean water and they're used all over the world. And they're, um, the International Space Station um, has these uh, uh, videos and that are on the Internet and talks about the humanity, uh, what, what the space station and what NASA has done for humanity. So if you can get a chance to go to listen to those or see them, uh, it's wonderful. We just have a couple more minutes uh, in uh, this segment uh, to talk about, again, uh, the lead-up to Apollo 11. It was a success, but then uh, the the program continued. There was almost a near tragedy, I believe, for the Apollo 13 mission in 1970, an oxygen tank explosion requiring makeshift repairs to safely return the astronauts. Donald Rethke, you helped with that as well. Well, we helped with a whole bunch of, about 400 other people at Hamilton, but actually, again, we were at our little mission control center in the Mahogany Rural in Hamilton, and one of my buddies got a call at 11.30 at night, hey, Houston, we have a problem. So uh, within an hour and a half at Hamilton, we had about, we turned the lights on, had about 250 technicians and engineers helping NASA solve the problem. Basically, we had the hard, we had the test hardware, we had the talent, we had also vacuum chambers so we can do real-time testing. And the first thing, obviously, was if you lose your life support system, basically you are looking at uh, really a process to remove CO2 first. Also, they use the lunar module life support system as a as the rescue as a lifeboat. That system was designed for two days for two for two on two days for two astronauts on the moon. Now it became the lifeboat. That was for three four days for three astronauts. We knew our hardware was robust to do the job. Yes, but we knew also we'd run out of logistics. We were doing water tests. If you've seen the movie Apollo 13, it's a pretty accurate documentation of that system. But actually, we were we were there for four days, uh, port and starboard, helping these guys get back to Earth. When they, Schweikert came to Hamilton Standard and shook a thousand hands, God be back on Mother Earth. Mm. So we were very proud of that moment. In fact, this uh, this uh, exhibit, well, we have some exhibits at the Air Museum that will, next April will depict that situation again too. Well, I want to thank Donald Rusky for coming in, an 82-year-old retired aerospace engineer from Hamilton Standard at the time, known as Dr. Flush. We're going to tweet out some links, put it on Facebook, a great event happening uh, this weekend, Saturday, July 20th, at the New England Air Museum. Uh, Donald Rusky will be there. We really appreciate your time, Donald. Thank you very much for your help, okay? Uh, oh. this- this is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, Andy Poneris will stay with us. And after the break, we're going to shift to the next giant leap in space exploration, Mars. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I was strolling on the moon one day In a merry, merry month of December now, May, May When much to my surprise A pair of bunny eyes this is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.
Fifty years after humans first set foot on the moon, the space community has its sights on Mars. NASA wants to get there in another decade. Is that possible? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, my next guest is a planetary scientist, associate professor of planetary geology at Central Connecticut State University. Dr. Jennifer Piatik, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi, Lucy. Nice to talk with you. So um, our hour is running away from us, but I wanted to find out when we, we think about the Apollo program, the moon landings, how did that really impact your field of planetary geology? Um, I, it's really, honestly, it's a, it's a cornerstone for us now in planetary geology. I don't think we, we, we realize that until we sit down and think about it, but um, Apollo is really the, one of the few places in the solar system outside the Earth that we can say we have pieces of this object and we know exactly where they came from. We know how deep they were in the surface when they were picked up. Um, and then so we can tie that back to not only what is the moon made out of, but, but how did it form. And we, had, we, just, we don't have that understanding about so many other objects. Mm. And what that really taught us is a lot about how objects like the moon formed. And so how do planets form? How do the moon form? And then we have this beautiful object sitting, you know, in our night sky most of the time. And it's, uh, it's a snapshot of what a planet goes through in its history. So we have, we have the moon as this, as this really pristine little object that we can say, okay, this is what the moon looks like. What happens if we add water and wind to that or ice and we get something like Mars? And what happens if it's a little bit warmer or a lot warmer and we get Venus? And uh, so really these, these samples and these missions have been a cornerstone mm-hmm. for us. Now, you mentioned Mars. I understand that you are studying Mars. Uh, there's so much advancements in technology where we have, we're able to study uh, with robots and, and satellites. So uh, this idea that we'd be sending uh, humans to Mars one day, is it necessary to send humans there to, to be able to study what we need to know? I think there's, there's a, a few good reasons maybe why we want to send humans. And, and the first one, I think, is is alluded to in the run-up to Apollo, is why are we going there? Well, it's there, right? We want to go there because it's the next hill. We want to go to the top. We want to be there in person. But there's also, even with all of our advances in technology, I, I'm not sure we're at the point where we can get the intuition of a human being. So, um, so give us an example. example okay. <laughs> Apollo 17, where the, the astronauts... Um, noticed that there was some weird soil that looked a little bit different. So they picked it up. The, the orange soil from Apollo 17 is really some of our first evidence that the moon had more water than we expected because it's the result of a little explosive volcanic eruption. So when we send something to Mars, hopefully within our lifetime, we can send a person there, and hopefully that person can, can make those intuitive leaps that, that our robots maybe can't yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you, so you, were you alive back, uh, you're probably too young uh, or not alive at all when the uh, Apollo 11 mission happened, but I'm curious that in your lifetime, do you think that humans will make it to Mars? I, I don't know. I go back and forth on that. I think I'm, I'm optimist to say I'd like to see it, but I, I'm also a little bit pessimistic because um, Apollo was very much sort of a singular uh, event that, that we were committed to, we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm not sure that we have that same push to get to Mars because, you know, Mars is 200 times further away. So the cost is going to be greater in terms of money, in terms of potential lives lost. So are we ready for that? I don't know. I'd like, I'd like to think we are. I'm glad you brought up the cost. Uh, I saw a report by the CBC that the entire Apollo program is estimated to have cost $25 billion U.S. or more than $280 billion when adjusted for inflation. Uh, Andy Poneris, uh, who's with us from WSHU, uh, the benefits to the Apollo program, uh, were they worth it? Uh, absolutely. I, I believe so. And, and, and just being in the medical field itself, uh, all the advances I've seen, and as I talked about, people having to have brain surgery uh, before uh, go through CAT scanners and MRI machines today, and and uh, you know, and find out there's nothing really wrong with them. They don't need surgery. When we compare what happened uh, in that decade uh, to Apollo 11, uh, the Cold War was a big motivation. There was political will. Now, uh, what do we have? Private enterprises that want to be the first to say that they can take humans to the moon, Andy, or um, to the Mars, yeah. rather. Yeah, we do, and that's that's the that's very exciting, because uh, as as you had mentioned, uh, there's a cost involved, and uh, the cost is very expensive. And to go to Mars, uh, it's it's much more expensive, and uh, with private enterprise getting involved in this, and we're doing this during a peaceful era. It's not the Cold War is not driving the space program, which it did. NASA's budget was, uh, I think, about ten times the amount that it is today, uh, and with private enterprise uh, and entrepreneurs. Uh, being able to make money and also doing th- things for humanity, I think it's a big plus. So we're going to go back to the moon in uh, 2024, and Don't they're going to build a. The, um, pardon me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to comment on the international aspect of, that India and China and even Israel are sending missions to these, um, to Mars and to or to the moon and to Mars. So there's that competition um, as well, or that potential partnership. That's interesting you mentioned partnership because during the Cold War, I believe uh, President Kennedy at times said, why don't we do it with the Soviets? But that wasn't something that the uh, USSR was was interested in. Uh, maybe that would have prevented some tragedies from happening, uh, Andy. Yes, and that's, but that's what we're doing today. Mm. That's the wonderful thing about it is the International Space Station is commanded both by, uh, by Russia and by the U.S. and jointly done. And uh, it also is, uh, you know, as, as you're talking about, other countries are involved. Uh, Japan made a module. Uh, Canada built the arm. Uh, there, there are astronauts uh, from Europe, uh, Japan. Uh, it really is truly an international space station. Uh, Andy, when we were looking back at history, uh, given all of the uh, um, the things that were happening in the 60s, uh, the assassinations, uh, a very unpopular war, um, is it amazing that this was uh, still able to happen, that Apollo 11 was able to be successful? Yeah, I think it was. Um, but I think Apollo 8 was the, was the was the mission that kind of brought it all together. And as we, as you had, we had mentioned before, is that this was, 1968 was a very, very difficult year for the United States. Assassinations, a war that was very unpopular, um, lots of uh, unrest, uh, rioting. And uh, when the Apollo 8 um, went around the moon and uh, were the first earthlings to see the, the earth rise, and uh, reading from the book of Genesis on Christmas Eve, uh, I, that, I believe, brought the whole world together and, and put us on a positive note about the space program. 
And I don't know how you felt. I'm sorry, you weren't around at the time, but how <laughs> others felt. But I felt that we were we were earthlings that day. We we weren't just you know someone who lived in Stratford or Bridgeport, Connecticut, or or you know in the United States or any country in the world. And I think that's what brought us all together. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Piatik, again, Associate Professor of Planetary Geology at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, you mentioned the emphasis on, on the international space community. Um, we can't forget the advancements in science, of course, since the Apollo program. What, do you would, li- what would you like to see in the next few decades? Um, in the next few decades, I, I, I would love to see just, just more more exploration of of space. Anytime that we can send a picture back and look back, we can look back on the Earth or we can look at something that we've never seen before. And just to think about the things that have happened in the last decade that we've sent these long-lived rovers to Mars, we've seen Pluto for the first time and learned how what a weird place that is. We've had a, a mission to Mercury, um, things like that. So I'd love to see this this continue and there is a lot of international participation, and, and, you know, not just the ISS, that we look at missions that we have um, at Mars, and, you know, the camera comes from Canada, but the orbiter comes from Europe. There's um, just a fantastic opportunity for this sort of international participation and sharing of all of this. And honestly, 50 years from now, when we're looking back at 100 years of Apollo, I hope we can say things like, we sent a drone to Titan. We've put men on, or a crewed mission on the moon. We've put another one on Mars. We're thinking about landing on the surface of Venus again. I'd just love to see this continue. Mm. Well, we'd love to have you back, Dr. Jennifer Piatik, Associate Professor of Planetary Geology at CCSU. Thanks for calling in. Thank you so much. Also, Andy Paneris, a NASA volunteer as a social system ambassador, a solar system ambassador, rather, and host of the Cosmic Perspectives radio show on WPKN in Bridgeport. Uh, Andy, uh, over the years, you've interviewed some astronauts. We'll try to share those links with our listeners. I really appreciated and enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting me. Carmen Baskoff produced today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.